Well, good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning? We've been doing a series on the church called Upon This Rock, and it was that text that we examined the first time we were together there in Matthew 16. Then we went over to John 17, where we saw Jesus prayed the entire prayer to His Father for His church that He said He would build. And we looked at several passages, and now we're in Acts chapter 2. In verse 41, Then those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This morning we want to look back in verse 42 at the second item that was on their priority list. The first being the Apostles' Doctrine. That's what we looked at last week. The second being fellowship. And in the original language it's the fellowship. A very specific kind of fellowship. As we begin this morning, let me read an article to you that, well, it caught my eye when I saw the name of the article, and it interested me enough to read it and then cut it out and share it with you. Church, it says, a trendy place for singles seeking dates. Here's a part of the article. The young man was explaining the facts of single life. He said, meeting people at the office or at the supermarket is passe. Church, he said, is trendy. And then as he goes on talking about finding the right person, it gives a new meaning to the phrase dating service. One expert has many helpful hints. She says they work well for almost any religion. She advised women to show up a little bit late, stand in the back of the church, spot an interesting man, and then sit next to him. She warned to watch how much a man drops in the collection basket. It isn't just the Lord who loves a cheerful giver, she said. Another single, Jack, offered his expertise. You gotta be subtle. You gotta check it out. We're talking about a two or three week campaign before you make your move. You need to get a feel for the church. Sit in the back for a while. Other pointers from Jack. Go to church with your mother and you won't have a prayer, he says. She might want to drive. She's probably got a station wagon. Nothing is more embarrassing than making eyes with somebody all during the church and then getting into a wood-paneled station wagon wagon with your mother. I don't know. If it's a woody, it could be pretty cool. But anyway, it goes on and on to talk about church, a trendy place for people seeking dates. Now, why am I reading this? I'm reading it because one of the very first things God said after His creation is this. It is not good that man should be alone. And the antidote in society for Christians who are feeling alienated and lonely, the true antidote is God's answer, which is the church. 
I'm not suggesting that church ought to be the place that people go just to seek dates or that our motive for coming ought to be just to seek dates. But I got to tell you this, I'd rather people meet at church than out in a bar somewhere. I don't see anything really wrong with that per se. By the way, just as a show of hands, how many of you are married? Raise your hands this morning. Show of hands. Great. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Now, how many of you are single? Raise your hands. Okay. Now keep them up and look around. <laughs> I just thought I'd help a little bit, you know. Well, we have a little fun, don't we? Now, verse 42 is their devotion to the fellowship. It says they were continuing steadfastly in the fellowship. And then verse 43 down to verse 47 is a description of their fellowship, how they did it. It was first a learning church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. It was second a loving church. They were continuing steadfastly in fellowship. I found a poll that was taken To unchurched people, they ask this question. Why don't you go to church? Or why did you stop going to church? 49% said because the church is not efficient in helping people find meaning in life. That was their experience. Didn't help. I go to church, it didn't help me find the meaning of life. 56% said because the church is more concerned with organizational issues than with spiritual issues. Now I can only conclude if those are correct that those churches have forsaken their priorities of the Word of God and fellowship. Because when you are devoted to the Word of God, you find meaning in life. And when you apply the Word of God through the fellowship of the saints, it takes care of all the spiritual issues that are in life. But... A thing interests me here in verse 42. um, Fellowship is second on the list only to the Apostles' Doctrine. And I know we're going to cover all four of those elements, but what it shows me is how important those four things are together. And let's just consider the first two, Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship. The second one balances out the first one, and here's how. If the church is only about... Bible teaching, and only about the Apostles' Doctrine, it can become cold and academic. But if the church is only concerned about fellowship, it can just become a social club. But if the fellowship is centered around the Apostles' Doctrine, it can become dynamic. This morning, the way I'd like to approach verse 42 in this week study is to ask four questions. They devoted themselves or continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Here's the first question. What does that mean? What is the fellowship? Number two, why is it needed? Why is it so important that they would have to devote themselves to it? Number three, how was it accomplished? How was it done? And number four, how often? Let's consider then what it is. Now, you probably, if, uh, if you know any words at all that come from the Greek language into the English language, you know at least agape, because that's used all the time, love. And the second one would be this one, koinonia. Just about every Christian knows that term, even though it's not an English word, it's a Greek word, koinonia, fellowship. 
But as I mentioned, there's an article in front of it in the Greek language. Ha koinonia, the fellowship. So it's a special kind of fellowship. And it's important because a lot of people tack the word fellowship onto just about any Christian gathering. Oh, we're having fellowship. Fellowship doesn't mean I hang out in Jesus' name. And interestingly enough, there's no mention of coffee and donuts in these verses at all. But let me tell you how it is often translated in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated fellowship. Other times the word is translated communion. At other times it is rendered distribution, contribution, and even partnership. Now think of all those definitions. You have one ultimate obvious conclusion, don't you? You can never do fellowship by yourself. You can't say, I'm just going to be at home, I'll be all alone, I'm going to have fellowship. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. You have to have people around you to do fellowship. Which leads me to say this, thou shalt not worship thy radio, thou shalt not worship thy television. I was talking to one lady after the first service and she said, yeah, I had a friend who was a, belonged to the... Um, uh, an interesting church. I said, what fellowship do you belong to? She says, to the bed, uh, Bedside Baptist Fellowship. She said, I lay in bed every Sunday and I turn on the television. That's my church. Or I listen to the radio. That's my church. You cannot do this in that way. It denotes being together with one another. There's a book out called People-Centered Evangelism. John Havlick is the author, and this is what he writes. The church is never a place, but always a people. It is never a fold, but always a flock. Never a sacred building, but always a believing assembly. The church is you who pray, not where you pray. A structure of brick or marble can no more be a church than your clothes of serge or satin can be you. There is in this world nothing sacred but man, no sanctuary of man but the soul. So we know this. The early church was devoted steadfastly or constantly devoted to the fellowship, getting together with one another. Why? What was their purpose? Well, principally, I'll sum it up and then I'll show you exactly what it was. Principally, it was to stimulate each other. You stimulate each other to love, to good works, to holiness, to faithfulness. And the best way to understand that, though we don't have time to do it all, is to look up in the New Testament all of the usages of the phrase one another. It's one of the most fruitful things you can study on your own. One another. There are 60 times in the New Testament the term one another appears. We don't have time, as I said, for all of them, but I want to give you a smattering if I can. Can I? Let's turn in our Bibles, and after last week's sermon, I'm sure you brought yours, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and let's look at a smattering of the one another's of the New Testament. Find out what they did when they got together. We begin in Romans 12, the 10th verse. Found it? That's good. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another another. In other words, figure out how to honor each other with genuine affection. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. 
Do not be wise in your own opinions. That is, learn to cultivate real camaraderie with everyone from every class, not just, well, I've got my own little special group. They're just like I am. They think exactly like I do, but with all strata of believing Christians. Chapter 13, verse 8 is the next one. Owe to no one anything except to love one another, for who love, he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. You can never love too much. The debt is too high. Christ loved us with an everlasting love. He poured out his life on the cross. Therefore, love one another. Chapter 14, verse 19. I draw your attention to that verse. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, the things by which one may edify another. You know what that verse means? It means when you get together with another Christian, think of ways to improve his or her life. How can I add to your life? How could I edify rather than tear down? How could I build up? Chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God of all patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, when you get together, you ought to agree, we ought to agree on life's most important activity, which is what? Glorifying God. That's life's most important activity. And we should all agree on that. Verse 7. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Receive one another. Tear down the walls. Drain your moats, whatever would keep you distant from another person. Build bridges, not walls, in your relationships. Verse 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. That's one of the most important New Testament usages of the term one another, and let me explain why. You see the word admonish? It is an interesting word. It's a, it's a word, it only appears here. Nutetheo means to admonish, to warn, to teach, and that is the best New Testament description of the term counseling. Counseling. Paul says, this is the way I see it. The body of Christ, when you get together, you have all of the gifts necessary. You don't have to go outside the church to get counseling. You can counsel one another. You've got all that you need right here. Admonish one another. Chapter 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That is, extend outward visible sign of your affection. By the way... Um, that term appears five times in the New Testament. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You might say a holy handshake or a holy hug, whatever, but some outward visible sign of genuine affection. Well, that's Romans. Now I'm going to get you to go over to Ephesians, so just keep going to the right, and you'll see it, street sign, big bold letters, Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, this is just a smattering, but... These are Paul's writings. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness, gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. 
I love that. Bearing with one another in love. This is how I translate it. Be an eraser around people. Be willing to erase their faults. Instead of keeping a record of wrongs, just say, ah, forget it. I forgive you. Christ forgave me. Be an eraser. Verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We're all on the same page. We're all on the same team. Verse 32 is the final one. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So be kind. Be nice. Add a spoonful of honey to your speech. Be polite with people. Oh, I said it was the final one. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That joyful activity of speaking and singing truth-filled songs with one another. There's something about getting together and sharing scripture or singing a common hymn or song that can be so cool, so uplifting. Verse 21 is the final one for this morning. I think, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Men, remember that verse. Because most of the men that I meet who are Christian husbands, uh, they've memorized the next one only in all of the Bible. Wives, submit to your own husbands. They don't read the one right before that. Submitting to one another. Here's the idea, a mutuality of submission and love and consideration, emptying yourself of pride and, here's the key, the need for control. Submitting to one another. Well, those are some of the one another's. That's the stuff that they were called to do when they did fellowship. Now, that sounds like a great church to be a part of, doesn't it? If you could really practice all of those things, that sounds like the best place to hang out Anywhere. How many churches do you know that are like that? That's the bar. That's the description. Well, I would answer that. Uh, Only those who can truly say we are continually devoted to the apostles' doctrine and to the fellowship. Those churches who would say this isn't a social club. This is a spiritual gathering, a spiritual community. And let's get social around that spiritual stuff, the Word of God and true fellowship. And I will say this to you, when that's a priority, when the Apostles' Doctrine and the fellowship and all these things, when that's a priority, it creates such an environment of love and acceptance and nurture that people can't wait to do it again and again and again. You can't get enough of it. It's so satisfying. It won't just become a trendy place for single-seeking dates. It won't just become a place where people are more interested in organizational issues than spiritual issues. It becomes a place where there is satisfaction. Now, let's go back to Acts 2. We answered the first question. What is it? That's what it is. Here's the second question. Why is it so important? Why is it so important that of all of the activities the early church could place a priority on, that would be second on the list? Why is it needed? I'm going to answer that by taking you back and getting just a little uh, snippet of truth that would add to it. Back in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. 
Actually, only verse 13. Others, mocking, said they are full of new wine. Now let me give you the background. They're in Jerusalem. They're preaching the gospel. They're doing a spiritual activity, praising God in unknown languages and preaching the gospel. The unbelieving world, religious world, looks at it and says, You're drunk! Which causes an alienation to occur between the Christian community and the social community of Judaism. At first, Christians were Jews. But now a division takes place. And beginning in chapter 4, we read an intense persecution breaks out in Jerusalem that carries us out into chapter 8 to the extreme that all of those early Christians have to scatter and leave Jerusalem. Here's my point. The door of social interaction and acceptance and love between the outside world and the church, that door was closing. The church felt more isolated. They felt the hostility of the unbelieving world. Most of them, by the way, lost their jobs because most of the jobs in Jerusalem at the time were temple-related. So they have no social life. They have no economic life. And as that door of social interaction and acceptance is being closed by the outside world, the door of fellowship is being opened within the church. And here's my point. We live in a world that if we live right, if we live the way we ought to live, they're not going to really love us. Doesn't the Bible say, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. If you live right, you'll be persecuted. If you live so nobody knows you're a Christian, you live like the world, nobody cares, no, you won't get persecuted. But if you live godly, you'll be persecuted. As that persecution takes place, as that alienation and isolation is felt by us, the only place for us is with each other. That door of fellowship is open. And folks, here's the reason the church will never, ever, ever become an outdated institution. It'll never be coming out, especially in a culture filled with mobility and technology. 20% of our population relocates every year. So people are moving around from place to place. Technology, advancements in technology, new programs, new computers, all of that that we think will help us get to know each other better. Hey, we can instant message now. The research shows causes the opposite effect, this sense of alienation and isolation with the increase of technology. The human touch is wanted and needed more than anything else. You see, you can't go to the computer store and buy Fellowship 7.0. It won't work. There's no program that will take the place. Or Acceptance 3.2. There's an old Jewish proverb I agree with. It says, a friendless man is like a left hand bereft of the right hand. Now, I want to rewrite that proverb. An isolated Christian. Let me rephrase that. An out-of-fellowship Christian is like a left hand bereft of the right hand. Proverbs 18, verse 1, Solomon, with great perspicuity, great insight, and great truth, says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desires. He rages against all wise judgment. 
There's somebody that I can think of in my mind that embodies that proverb perhaps better than anyone else we know of or have heard of, and that's Adolf Hitler. I was reading something by Albert Speer, who was his closest associate. Speer said, if anybody knew Hitler well, I knew him. He said something interesting about the man. Not only was he an egomaniac, he loved himself intensely. He despised friendships. He wouldn't tolerate them. He repelled against any form of um, engaging friendships. He isolated himself. There's some good literature out on the market by a Christian um, researcher and, I guess, sociologist named Donald Joy. Donald Joy has written a lot of books on relationships, uh, men in healthy relationships with other men in the church and in families, etc. Donald Joy speaks about a person's life uh, in terms of your spiritual and mental health like a four-sided trampoline. In fact, the chapter in one of his books is called Who's Holding Your Trampoline? And he says you need people on all four sides of your trampoline in your life because you and I bounce up and down so much through life's trials that we need somebody to catch the trampoline, hold on to it. He says those four people groups are your close family, which is wife, husband, children, parents. Number two, relatives, cousins, grandparents. Uh, Then three, your friends, uh, that lifelong collection of friends that are still active in your life. And number four, on the fourth side of the trampoline, associates, whether it's work associates or um, athletic associates or especially, he says, church associates. And uh, he says in his writings, all four sides represent your support system so that when you get bounced up and down through life, you better have all four sides covered by people. Now, this is what, what he says. He says, think about your personal life And ask yourself this, how many can you count on to be holding your trampoline? Think of all those four arenas. How many can you count on to hold your trampoline? Research shows that a healthy system has at least 12 people involved. 12 people dispersed on those four sides. Most of them, he says, will know each other. And then he goes on to say, in a neurotic system, there will be 10 to 12 people and less than a third know each other. In a psychotic system, there'll be four to five people, and they don't know each other much at all. You're more and more isolated. And I would love to be able to say that that's the world, and this is the church, and the world doesn't have fellowship, but the church does, and isn't it great to be a part of the church? But i got to tell you, I know a lot of Christians who get together every week and are still isolated. They're still isolated from other brothers and sisters in the church. They're still mad over this and that. And they haven't forgiven and they won't get together and they hold a grudge. And, and, worst of all, some of them are married to each other. Listen to this. This was several years ago. It was a Sunday morning. We had a church service and just like Holland says, turn around and say something to each other and hug each other and give fellowship. One morning I decided to do something different. I said, turn around and hug the person you're sitting next to. And I got a letter that week. (laughs) And I'm going to read it to you. It's from an anonymous person. Dear Skip, my husband did as you suggested and hugged the person next to him. That would be her. 
We sleep in the same bed, and until this morning, we have had no physical contact in three months. How do you devote yourself to fellowship when that's the reality? So that's what it is. That's why it's needed. Here's the third question. How do you do it? How is it done? Well, look at verse 44. Chapter 2, Acts, verse 44. Now all who believed, and by the way, all in Greek means all. Just thought I'd let you know that. All who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily, watch this, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Twofold structure is outlined in those verses. One is a large group setting. That's the temple. One is a small group setting. That's house to house. Let me give you a little background. There was a long-standing tradition in Jerusalem, in Israel, but especially Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the place people from all over the country came for three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And because there was this huge influx of visitors from all over the world, the Jerusalemites typically, get this, opened up their homes to anybody who needed a place to stay. You didn't have to know them. You just knew they were Jewish. They were there to worship. Come on in. Who are you? We'll feed you. And they gave their resources and rooms to anybody who had need. That's how people could travel from all over the uh, Judea and Israel and be there at the feast and have a place to be taken care of because of this hospitality. However... The doors of social love and acceptance are being closed by the Jewish community toward the Christian community. But the door of fellowship is being opened among Christians. So what they do? Well, they would get together at the place they were used to getting together, the temple. And why? Because it was huge, that's why. It was a place that could accommodate multiple thousands of people. It was several acres of stone. And there was an interesting place there called Solomon's Porch. You read about it in the Gospels. Jesus taught in Solomon's porch. It was this portico-covered area. Weather is usually mild, like here. Um, If it's raining, you can get under the portico. But the point is, groups could gather for singing and for Bible teaching. Peter could be there and explain how the prophets spoke of Christ and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So they would get the Bible study and worship. But then house to house would provide that fellowship of friendship, partnership, close interaction. There's two facts I want you to be aware of at this point. Both of them are important. Number one, the church in Jerusalem was huge. I think you'd occur with that or concur with that just so far. There were 120, 3,000 got saved in one day. And some scholars believe that's only counting the men. They often did that. Sorry, they were just sort of prejudiced that way. They would count the men and leave out the women and children. But then more got added and more. And it says, uh, eventually, there were multitudes. There were multitudes of people in Jerusalem. Conservative estimates place the early church in Jerusalem after the first nine months to a year at about 20,000 people. That's a big church. 20,000 people. That's growth. So number one, the church was huge. Number two, though it was large, 
they all had intimate fellowship. You say, how do you know that? Because I read it. Verse 44, now all, remember that means all, who believed were together and had all things in common. Ooh, that's good. It tells me, doesn't matter how large the church gets, you can still have intimate fellowship with people in that church. If you meet in the temple and from house to house. It's a great place, great way to mix it up. Large group, small group gatherings. It's important to share that because I have heard a sentiment over time. I used to hear it a lot when I was in Albuquerque from people. Oh, I can't fellowship here at this church. It's too large. So we're going to go to a smaller church. Now, I understand that need, and I would put my arm around the person and bless them in the Lord wherever you go, but then I would say to them, now, be careful. Bless you as you go to a smaller fellowship, but maybe you should pray that it never grows. That wherever you go, God wouldn't pour out His blessing upon it. And by the way, every New Testament church grew if it was healthy. The Lord added daily. But pray it never grows. Because if it grows, you're going to get mad again. You're not going to feel comfortable again. And then you're going to go through this cycle, this endless pattern of going from place to place to, and be a wanderer. Because you want intimate fellowship. You can have it. By the way, the Bible says, He who has friends must himself be friendly. That's the key. He who has friends must himself be friendly. So this kind of fellowship is possible. So I want to sum it up so far. The early church had a priority list. The Apostles' Doctrine was number one. It's all about what the Bible says about our condition and our relationship with God. Number two, they devoted themselves to fellowship. And when they did that and they met together, they solved a lot of problems. They solved the problem of isolation. They solved the problem of loneliness. They solved the problem of meeting needs because everybody gave whatever you needed to other people. They solved the problem of having a family because now they have a spiritual family that will take care of them. And they solved the problem of instruction because their fellowship was based upon the Apostles' Doctrine. I'll ask a fourth and a final question. When? When does it happen? Look at verse 46. So continuing, what's the next word? So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now don't worry. I'm not going to say, unless you go to church every single day, you're just not spiritual. I'm not going to say that. That's just not true. It was a necessity at first because that was their only social interaction. That was their family. By necessity, they met together. Also, it was at its beginning, nascent, burgeoning state. And they met together daily. Later on, we read in Acts chapter 20, on the first day of the week when the disciples got together to break bread, Paul was there and he preached a sermon lasted till midnight. I think you know that story. Very interesting. It was a long church service. So they began meeting daily. They at least met and continued to meet the first day of the week. And we find that even in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, when you gather together on the first day of the week to bring your collections in, make sure that you set some aside for the Gentile church. How often is fellowship necessary? Well, I'm not going to say every day, but I am going to say it ought to be more frequent than infrequent. 
it ought to certainly be more regular than irregular. At least once a week, a week would be wasted without the fellowship of the saints. In fact, I'll go a step further. To fail to participate in the life of the local church is to go against a direct command of Scripture. You say, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. Can I worship God anywhere? Yeah, you can. I mean, technically, does it really matter that I... And, and, I, and I've been asked this question. Do I have to go to church? And anybody that has to ask that question, something's wrong. And sometimes I'll even bring up John chapter 4 where Jesus said to the woman at Samaria, Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will men worship, because those who worship the Father worship in spirit and truth. So they say, can we worship God anywhere? Answer, yeah, you can. You can. You can worship God in the mountains. He's there. You can worship God in your living room. You can worship God out on the back porch smelling flowers. You can worship God under the stars at the beach in the mall in your car. Simply because God is everywhere and should be worshipped everywhere at all times by all people in a perfect world. So, yeah, you can. However, this is how I want to end this service. There is a building, a special building, that God meets with His people in a special way. You want to know what it is? You want to know where it is? I want to show you. Turn with me, and we'll close on this, to Ephesians chapter 2. You were already there in Ephesians. You know where it is. Find Ephesians chapter 2. And let's look at this building. Verse 19, Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers, plural, and foreigners, plural, but fellow citizens, plural, with the saints, plural, and members, sorry, plural, of the household of God. What is he saying? He's saying you're all citizens of the kingdom of God. More than that, you're part of God's temple, his household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now what is Paul doing? Paul is speaking of Christians collectively, not individually. You say, yeah, but wait a minute. There's that great verse in 1 Corinthians where it says, don't you know that your body is the temple, singular, of the Holy Spirit? Meaning your body, wherever you take it, is a place where worship can happen. In the mountains, at the beach, at home, you got a temple, your body, God's inside of it, you can worship. That's great, but it doesn't end there. For it says, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, collectively. In other words, instead of having just a bunch of temples running around doing their own thing, it's when we gather together corporately like this that it becomes God's building. And that is the visible living assembly of redeemed saints gathered together. When we gather together like this, listen carefully, God can accomplish here in this setting what he can never accomplish when you're in your isolation. There is some dynamic that occurs Call it accountability. Call it encouragement. Where God can work in such a way and accomplish certain things that he cannot in our isolation. You say, well, what can God accomplish? 
I'll read to you perhaps the most famous scriptural text on this issue out of Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So why do we do it? To stimulate one another to good works, toward love, to fruitfulness, and to holiness. And that stimulation and that affirmation is critical in your life. You isolate yourself from that, you won't make it the way you ought to make it. There was a pastor visiting somebody who attended church infrequently. He was in his parish a long time ago. He went to his house to visit him, and the man was standing, or excuse me, sitting on a chair in front of a fire, and he was just being heated by the coals. It was a cold day. He was being warmed by the coals in that fire. And the pastor said, Friend, I don't see you at church very often. You come only when it's convenient. I wish I'd see you all the time. And then... The pastor reached with tongs and he started separating the coals one from another and he waited a few minutes and they all died out. He said, friend, that's what's happening in your life. That's what's happening in your life. As soon as you isolate yourself from other Christians, the fire will go out. The fire will go out. So let's take a little test. Don't share the answers with anyone, just between you and God. If the test consists of question one, are you devoted steadfastly continuing in the apostles' doctrine? Do you love the Bible enough to make it your meal on a daily basis, that you're devoted to it? How'd you do on that question? Did you pass? Did you fail? Where are you at? Question number two, fellowship. Are you devoting yourself as a priority steadfastly to fellowship, the fellowship? Stimulating one another to good works. Are you a spectator? Are you a participant? Don't fall into the Orange County vibe of, well, I go to church everywhere. I'm just a floater in Jesus' name. Devote yourself steadfastly to the fellowship. 2,000 years ago, the Roman government looked at the church through skeptical eyes. So skeptical because they thought, who are these people meeting together in these groups, in these church assemblies? What are they about? They were afraid that the Christians would defect and become anti-government. So the Roman government sent spies into the assemblies of the Christians to find out what they were doing. And the spies would be there, and they would take notes and write back to the government, which I've always found fascinating. If spies were sent into our assemblies today, what would they say? What would they write? Tertullian says one of these spies wrote back to the government these words, quote, These Christians are very strange people. I could have told you that. They meet together in an empty room to worship. They do not have an image, no icon. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who's absent, but whom they seem to be expecting at any time. And my, how they love him, and my, how they love one another. It's pretty cool for an unbelieving spy to write about the church you go to. Yeah, they get together and they sing to somebody who's not there. 
And they talk about somebody you can't see, but they think he's going to show up at any time. But boy, do they love him. And boy, do they love each other. That, that is being devoted to the fellowship. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we look in the pages of your word and we see our template, our model, the bar that was set, not during the Reformation times, not during the Moravian times, not during any other period of history, but just the very first. And we would look and say, this is the first church. This is what they were about. This is what they did. This is what is important to them. And you have preserved that record so that we would be encouraged by it and live according to it. May we be a learning church. May we be a loving church. One devoted to the true fellowship, partnership, communion, distribution that centers around giving God the glory and edifying and loving and forgiving and building up one another, something that will never go out of style, something we can never get enough of when we truly experience it. Lord, I pray that we would be so devoted to it that you might accomplish your work in us through your word and through the accountability of being with each other. Do what you can only do in meetings like this. I pray we'd be so devoted to it that we'd say, I can't wait to do it again. I can't wait to see what thing the Lord's going to do in my heart again. May we be marked by it. Thank you, Lord, for this lovely fellowship of your saints who love you and love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.